Hello, and welcome to the Equity Foundation podcast. The Equity Foundation is the professional development arm of Actors' Equity. Our mission is to assist, educate, and inspire performers. As part of the Foundation's In Conversation series, performers are given the opportunity to attend an intimate question and answer session with leading performers, producers, directors, writers, and other members of the industry. Sheldon, what can I say? <laughs> the guy grew up in a trunk in the basement of J.C. Williamson's Her Majesty's Theatre in Melbourne with extraordinarily talented grandparents, an auntie that changed the perception that Australians couldn't succeed internationally, parents who turned Australian television upside down, and a mother who is truly a great star of the Australian theatre. Tony is a great ambassador for us in New York, and we are proud of him and his success. God bless dear friend Frosty. P.S. I am looking for a big, glossy musical for you. We will hold him. <laughs> you had an extraordinary childhood and family. Um, did you love being part of a showbiz family? When you were well, young? it was all I knew. Uh, when I was in kindergarten, I used to go up to the other kids and say, what show is your mummy in? <laughs> uh, I had no other frame of reference. It was all, it was all we talked about at home. Was was you know we we only played show music. Uh, all uh, the only people who came to our house were other performers. Uh, so that was it. I knew nothing else. I had nothing else to compare. And you performed to. from the age of seven. Was from the from age of seven, um, uh, Graham Kennedy. My my father was my father started out as a dancer with J.C. Williamson's, and uh, my mother was a leading lady at J.C. Williamson's. They met. Uh, at the Tivoli, my grandparents were vaudeville stars um, and radio stars, and uh, my father had taken me to dancing lessons when I was four at, at Olive Wallace, I think, in Melbourne, and uh, they were so intimidated by my father's um, talent and stature within the industry, they tried to teach me everything in that first lesson, everything <laughs> they could possibly teach me, and I left in tears, and my father... In the, got me in the car and said, that's it, you're never having another dance lesson again. So I actually didn't have any training mm. for anything, uh, except at the age of seven, on my seventh birthday, which was when children were legally allowed to appear on late-night television, Graham Kennedy, who had in Melbourne tonight the, the top-rating evening show, said... As a birthday present, we'll put Tony, or Butch as I was known at the time, we'll put, we'll put Butch on TV and, and we'll sing a duet. And, um, and, uh, but I actually was in Brisbane on my birthday. Mum was performing up there. So I, my first appearance was on In Brisbane tonight. And I sang a duet with Mum. Oh, would you like to swing on a star, carry moonbeams home in a jar? And then about three weeks later we got to Melbourne and I did the duet with Graham. And uh, there was an avalanche of mail came in saying, that adorable child. Now, I actually wasn't very good, um, but I think there weren't any other kids in that time slot. There were Swallows Juniors uh, at, at five o'clock. There were, there were afternoon shows for kids, but there was nobody in that adult slot. So I got a contract with Channel 9. I woke up one morning and my parents had put the contract next to my bed. <laughs> What's this? And it was me to sign my life away to Channel 9. And uh, every second Wednesday for the next two years, I was the resident child on In Melbourne Tonight. And uh, I would sing and I would do comedy sketches and I would dance after a fashion. And, uh, but you had to, I had to be off by 10 o'clock 
because that was when the child welfare department went, no, he's got to be in bed. So the show started at 9.30. So for half an hour every second Wednesday, it was the Tony Shelton show. <laughs> and, uh, which, which was lovely for, for two years. But I, I didn't have a life, really, because at school I just got relentlessly teased. Mm. And so I started to get a bit of attitude. And after two years, I was doing a, um, a number with my mother and my grandmother on three stools. And I started fancying myself as Perry Como, so I was sort of sitting like this on the stool. And my dad, who was the producer, kept coming down from the control room and saying, Tony, you're a little boy, sit like that. And I'd go, yes, Dad. And then as soon as he was gone, I'd do this. Tony, sit properly. Yeah, all right. So finally we went live that night and there was me. Doing, I was nine by now, <laughs> doing this. And I came off after the number and my father was waiting for me. He said, that is the last time you appear on television. And he fired me. And so I was, was sent that? into retirement at the age yeah. of... <laughs> it's funny though, I just, um, I just read Martin Short's fantastic book and, and he talks about he would perform a variety hour in his bedroom from the age of seven. It, like, you, you know, collect this music and mime to Mel Torme and whatnot. And when he finally was doing his own talk show, he said he was drawing on all that experience he had as a child that wasn't very different. So, exactly. so you doing that probably still, yeah. still there. Exactly. exactly. But I, I came out of retirement um, almost a year later to do Oliver. Oliver, that's right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That's so one of I was one of the kids. Boys. I auditioned for Betty Pounder and she said, no, you're just, you're just too young to do. And I wasn't very good again. Um, so, uh, yeah, I was number four boy in the blue group. And I was, I'd started putting on weight around that time. I've had a lifelong weight problem. And uh, so I was starting to turn into a bit of a pudding. And I, unfortunately, number four boy was the one who stood on the table in Food Glorious Food. <laughs> and I can still remember people pointing and laughing at the fat child. I could see them. So, more yes. not for you. Yes, <laughs> yes, not for you. Yes. And what was what was the first show that you saw that you kind of went? That's for me. Or was it just? I can still remember Pajama Game right. when I was eighteen months old. I can still remember um, flashes, you know, bits and pieces of it. Um, but Mum and Dad used to take me to see all the big Williamsons musicals. Um, so, you know, I, I remember her taking me to a Wednesday, a Saturday matinee, Bye Bye Birdie, which I adored, and then we went home. And we had dinner, and then my parents said, well, the babysitter's arriving now because we're going out again. And I said, where are you going? And they said, we're going to see another show, Irma La Douce. Well, why can't I come to that? They said, well, this is a show for grown-ups. I don't care. Why? It's a musical. Why can't I go to that? And I threw a terrible... I had, was out crying in the street. Because I couldn't go... And, couldn't understand why they were going to another musical that I couldn't go to. But I didn't see a, a play until I moved to Sydney after my dad died when we were 11. And what was that? Uh, well, suddenly there was this world of theatre that, that opened up to me. Uh, uh, I was seeing stuff at the, uh, the Independent. It was the year of Prime of Miss Jean Brodie with, with Jackie Cott and um, uh, Aileen Britton was in the anniversary and, and the ensemble was doing a Lanford Wilson play called The Rhymers of Eldritch. And I was seeing stuff out at the community theatre and suddenly I was seeing Review at the Philip Theatre, um, but I wouldn't want to live there uh, with Gloria Dawn and, and Ruth Cracknell and Lyle O'Hara. Uh, so it was about 11 or 12 that suddenly the world opened up for me in terms, yeah, yeah. Of, in terms of... And I started going up by myself. Yeah, right. Yeah. Yeah. At 12, wow. Yeah, wow. yeah. Well, you know, I'd always... Mm. Yeah, yeah. It was as soon as we moved to Sydney. My, my, my father had just died during the run of Oliver 
and uh, my mother was struggling to make a living as a single parent all of a sudden. Mm. And we moved to Sydney uh, because the leagues clubs and RSLs were, were happening here and mum could do her nightclub act. Uh, so I was alone a lot of the time and, mm. and uh, so I used to take myself to the theatre and, and um, I would mostly go and see the JCW shows mm. but I suddenly... I was backstage seeing Half a Sixpence and a girl in the cast said to me, do you know this new place that's open called The Nimrod? They're doing a show called Biggles. I had never heard of The Nimrod and that was... It was an experimental Australian play. I, what? And uh, so that opened a whole world. And I've read somewhere too that to differentiate yourself from your your family, the tradition of their kind of vaudeville and musical past, you became very interested in doing plays at school. Well, that, that's what I want to do for a while. That, so. that I can lay squarely at the feet of Terence Clark, right. who was um, a, a maths teacher at my school in Sydney. And he used to direct plays. And when I arrived, he was doing The Dumb Waiter, the Harold Pinter play. And uh, he, he must have known about my background because he came to me and said, Sheldon, and um, who is this terrifying man? Um, Sheldon, I'm, I'm, going to, I'm, going to, I'm going to do The Tempest and you are going to uh, play the role of Miranda. And I said, no, I don't want to do that. And uh, he, was, he was a bit nonplussed by, uh, by that. But um, he changed the play. He suddenly changed the play and said, changed it to the birthday party, the Harold Pinter play. And uh, I auditioned for that and got into it. And he... I suddenly realised I had a talent for drama. Mm. And I'd been so worried the, about the fact that I couldn't dance like my dad and I couldn't sing like my mum and I wasn't a rock singer like my auntie Helen. What am I going to do? How am I going to fit into this industry? And it was Terry who showed me that I had a gift for drama. Mm. And you ended up doing a lot of plays with Terry at the Hunter Valley Theatre oh, Yeah, Well, yeah. yes, that was uh, when I was 20. Mm. Um, he invited me, along with Kerry Walker and Robert Alexander, to be the nucleus of the, um, the Hunter Valley Theatre. So Equus and Happy and Holly. A Floating, World, Floating World, John Romerall, Hamlet on Ice, The Glass Menagerie, mm. and a new Australian play by John O'Donoghue called A Happy and Holy Occasion. Mm. And then we topped it all off with a review that we wrote ourselves. And about, <laughs> about the same time, you were also doing a, like, a few musicals, like The Roar of the Grease Paint, The Smell of the Crowd, uh, The Fantastics you formed in. Yes. Um, the musical thing, um, I, I developed... A, a great love for musicals. While I was doing Oliver, I was allowed, I was invited by Betty Pounder to sit in on the rehearsals of Sweet Charity, the original production. I was 10 years old. And uh, so I trotted. I'd, I'd heard the album. We had the cast album. But they were quite advanced. They were, they were like three weeks into rehearsals. And I sat down and they, they were running the production numbers one after the other. So I sat down and there was Big Spender and there's got to be something better than this and The Rich Man's Frug and I'm a Brass Man, one after the other, led by Nancy Hayes and these extraordinary people, all of whom were performing to me because I was <laughs> sitting there like this. And uh, so that I suddenly became devoted yeah, yeah. completely to, to the Broadway musical, particularly to dance, uh, and that sort of sparked my interest in becoming a, 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 an historian mm. about, about music theatre as well. Um, yes, but The Fantastics was my first musical out of and you had, playing well, your role, playing the boy. Well, 
Yes. I was playing your role. Yes, but, but it was for... But a uh, you had a story about the Royal of the Grease paint, too, about... Um, yes, the Royal of the, the Grease paint was 1975. The Royal of the Grease paint was the first time I ever understudied. Um, I was... I auditioned for the lead in Greece, but this was out at Marion Street, and uh, a wonderful performer named Doug Kingsman was the director, and he said, he said, look, I've already cast the lead, he said, but there's a role in it of the Negro. <laughs> Typecasting again. <laughs> and uh, he, said, he said, I'm doing, because the original musical of Roar of the Grease Fans by Anthony Newell and Leslie Brickers, and it's set in a sort of a limbo world. He said, well, we're going to set it specifically after the atomic bomb has dropped. And we're all in a, like, Wynyard Station. And we're, we're all assuming roles to get control of who's going to take, you know, how, who's going to take over the new civilization. So... Sounds like a Simon Stone production. Uh, yeah, it was, it was very, very revolutionary. And so what happened was they blacked me up on stage just from the neck up when I became this character. And they booked a season in Brisbane for... for two weeks at the end of our run, and the artistic director called me in and said, the leading man can't go. Would you like to take over the lead? And I said, yeah. And the very next day, I turn up for work, and he said, the leading man has changed his mind. <laughs> he is going to go. However, he said, if we give you $100... Now, this was 1975. Would you understudy him? I went, yeah, yeah, OK. Um, now, the leading man was a man called Roger Newcomb, who was a real gym rat at the time when it wasn't fashionable to be a gym rat. But he was the healthiest person I've ever met in my life. So I said, he's never going to go off. So I never learnt the part. <laughs> never learnt the part. Took the $100 and ran. <laughs> and happily blacked up every night. And, and we're, we're doing our last matinee in Brisbane and, you know, the show's about to finish, one more performance, and Roger goes over on his ankle on stage in the middle of the second act at the matinee. And I come off and he's in his dressing room, white-faced and sweating, with his foot up, covered in ice, and he went, well, Tony, you're going to have to finish the season, aren't you? You're gonna... And I said, you can't go on! I've never learned the role! You've got to go on! And he's going, I can't... You've got to go on! And I made him go on. <laughs> And, and, and in the production, I'm starting to dancing past him, going, going great. <laughs> While he's limping his way through the thing. So that, that was the last time I ever said yes to understudying it. Wow. So after, after that experience, clearly you needed some, like, you know, some st a, a straight play after the, the world of the musical. And a, a hard god then arrived in your life, the Peter Canar play, which was kind of one of your first breakout roles, wasn't it? It was, it was. It was, um, it came in my foot. My mother had said, I, I didn't finish school because I was getting bullied a lot and I knew what I wanted to do and uh, my mother said, well, if you leave, you're going, you know you're going to starve. You've seen what, how tough this business is. I said, yes, Mum, and I got five shows in that first year, back to back, you know, the luck of, and arrogance of youth. And uh, the, I was in, I did Fantastics, then I went to the ensemble and, and did a new Australian play written by Robin Mose. Uh, from that, I went to a production of The Legend of King O'Malley at the Philip Theatre, which was so bad that um, 
Gordon Chater came to the, the first Saturday matinee and went directly backstage to the management and said, this show should not be allowed to be on. <laughs> and, uh, and we were closed. They pulled... Because of Gordon Chater. They, because wow. of Gordon Chater. He complained and they, they pulled the plug on us. Um, and so my friend Andrew Sharp, who was in the show um, and who I had been to school with and who had been in Oliver with me... Uh, said, I'm auditioning for this new play called A Hard God. And uh, I didn't know what that was, and so I rocked along to the Nimrod, where I had seen Biggles those years earlier. And uh, we read together, and, and we, we got it, and um, along with Gloria Dawn and, and Graham Rouse. Mm. And, uh, yes, so I, I suddenly I landed in the forefront of that sort of new... Wave of Australian drama that was all happening. On your um, on the subject of your dramatic chops, here's a here's a quote from Jackie Weaver. Sheldy's prodigious talents as an actor, singer, dancer are well known, but his huge range as an actor is not as universally known. What a brilliantly intellectual performance he gave in Louis Nara's Inner Voices years ago, and also in Peter Kanar's deeply moving and tragic A Hard God. Sheldy is equally at home being a debonair matinee idol, having inherited his father's talent and tall, handsome bearing and his mother's beauty, charm and impeccable comic timing. Sheldy's Elliot to Pamela Rabe's Amanda was one of the best private lives I've seen anywhere in the world. I was also fortunate to play Sheldy's lover in Nick Enright's Daylight Saving, and he was perfect. So that Daylight Saving came a bit, bit, bit after this, didn't it? It certainly yeah, did. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I was lucky because Peter, Peter Kanar became a great champion of mine, and he wrote a trilogy. Um, he wrote two more plays, sequels mm. to A Hard God, and um, although they were sort of specifically written for Gloria Dawn, but she, she died like the day after the opening night of the second play. So Maggie Kirkpatrick um, play, played that role. But he, I was allowed to play the role of Joe all, through. all the way through. And then um, Nick, who I'd known since he came into Oliver when he was like 15, uh, sort of took up the baton and he was writing stuff. Mm. that he was kindly allowing me to, to, to create roles in, in his work. So I was lucky enough to have two people like sort of writing for material me. for me, yeah, which yeah. was incredible. such an incredible yeah, honour. But John Bell um, is the one I would have to say taught me how to act. I mean, hard God, he more or less left, left Andrew and I alone because he said within, like, the first day, we were sort of playing ourselves, mm. so he didn't really want to tamper with that. But then he gave me Inner Voices. He, he sent me the script of this play by Louis Naura called Inner Voices. He, he'd offered it to Drew Forsyth, and Drew was unavailable. And my friend Robert Alexander had been cast in it, and he said, um, you should read this. And so I took the script of Inner Voices to a park, and... I did that thing that actors do if I was looking for my line <laughs> and I couldn't find my role. And uh, so I said to Robert, I'm not going to do this. And he said, what do you mean? I said, well, there's nothing... He doesn't do, say anything until the end of the play. He said, you idiot, it's a tour de force perform- thing. He's a mute. So I went back and reread it, and, and the rest uh, was history. And I said, "Yeah, um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah." And and John taught me how to sort of basically break down a script, and mm. you know, I, I, I was still sort of a variety vaudeville kid, mm. and you know, you can get by 
on a lot. I think it's hard for kids who start in the industry and then they grow up without... I said to Peter Carroll, who I worked with when I was 17, should I go to NIDA? And he said, I don't think they'd cope with you and I don't think you'd cope with them. <laughs> he said, I think you should just do what you're doing. Yeah. So I was learning on the job. Well, that's the same with me. Yeah, I mean, exactly. I, I learned from you, from Jackie Weep, from Robert Alexander, from John O'May, watching Six Degrees of Separation every night from David Atkins. And but I have to say, I mean, you obviously come to the table with something mm. because I was, I was the reader on the auditions for Greece, a David Atkins production. And we saw so many people and Mitchell walked in the door and we all sat up. And he hadn't done anything apart from uni stuff, really, and that we knew of. And it was like, well, he's cast, you know, before... It, so you've got something there well, to I work think to If build you do it. have a passion for it, like we both clearly do, I think that motivates you to a curiosity which is kind of your own drama school in, in many ways. So, yeah. Jackie said another thing about you, which nearly everybody who's spoken to me has said about you. She says, I remember sitting next to Tony Lamont at the hairdresser one morning when I was still a teenager and being fascinated by her stories of her young son with his encyclopedic knowledge of show business. <coughs> Decades later, that knowledge helped me win thousands of dollars for the Actors Benevolent Fund because Shelley was my phone a friend on Who Wants to Be a Millionaire. <laughs> He named Joaquin Phoenix's character in Gladiator. Um, similarly, other people said, your mum said, Tony is the go-to guy if you want for to find, for instance, who was the assistant stage manager on the third national tour of that particular musical in 1957 before, his cha before he changed his name. I'm really not exaggerating that much. <laughs> Roger Hodgman says his knowledge of theatre is encyclopedic. Deidre Rubenstein says he is a the theatrical filing cabinet. And Phil Scott says musical theatre is his church and he is the Pope. <laughs> what, uh, what fuels your desire for theatre history and that, that passion that, that, that sees you knowing so much about, about the work? I think, it was, I think it was the idea, and, and, and Charity sort of did ring the bell with me, um, that Australians had not been allowed to, to play leading roles um, for, for in commercial theatre. Uh, they always were bringing people out who were advertised as direct from Broadway. And it wasn't until um, Pajama Game that we had the first all-Australian cast in a musical post-war. We had Australian casts before the war. Um, but uh, So I thought, well, why? Who are these people that they're bringing out? So I started to go and sit in the offices of the Daily Telegraph and the Sydney Morning Herald and the library and researching, because there were no really definitive books about the history of Australian musical theatre. So I thought, all right, well, I'm going to write one. And I was 14 or 15. And uh, I, I took it upon myself that I was going to write the history of Australian musical theatre. And uh, so I, I realised that we had, in fact, been sort of an extension of summer stock in, in America and that we were getting stage managers from the original productions who were coming out and redirecting the shows. And we were getting mostly understudies from Broadway productions or touring companies who were coming out as the leads. And... Uh, which was fascinating. But also, back in the 30s, we were getting big names. We were getting film stars. Mm. and So, uh, yes, I just took it upon myself. It, 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 it became my religion. And I loved reading about it. And, and uh... I remember when I was, I was in, uh, after we did The Fantastics, I'd often go and have dinner at Tony and Tony's house and um, it'd be wonderful. And they'd both say, you need to watch this video. And it was a part of my education too, like watching old great Tony Award performances or... 
you know, great comedy performances. And then when uh, these guys were away for a couple of months doing a show, I think Tony was working for Bell and Sheldon was doing musical. I, I, I house-minded for them in Balmain for a little while. And they had a wall, for anyone who ever went to that house, a wall of videos of fantastic variety, musical comedy performances. And I've, I've, for you know, a couple of months, people ring and say, oh, do you want to come out tonight? I'm like, I'm really busy. I've been <laughs> rich for another video. <laughs> Which was a wonderful experience. So, so it's, it's a love, I think, that is, you know... Yeah, it's also, it's also that thing of, you know... Uh, every, everybody always thinks that what they're doing is, is new. And uh, it's, I've, I've always loved research and I've always loved finding out what went before, what got us to this point. And I was, I was also interested in why we hadn't had hit Australian musicals and I thought, have the, were there shows around? Well, there were so many, so many Australian musicals that were being done all around the country as far back as the 20s. Um, Ray Colley, who was in the audience, was, wrote several of them. Um, so it, it was really interesting working out what everybody had been doing and, and just seeing how did we get to here. And, and you and Frank Fran Van uh, Stratton were, were considering writing a book together, weren't you, at one point? Or? No, not really. Um, no, it, uh, the, the project got too big for me right. because I realised what I would ultimately have to do was take a couple of years off mm. from acting. I didn't have enough money to do that. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I ended up handing over the project to uh, Neil Litchfield, oh, who... Right. who um, writes for Stage Whispers. Mm. And uh, so he's got all my stuff and mm. hopefully he will Useful performers out there, take up the bat. You know, <laughs> continue. Back, back to your bio. In 1979, while deep into your dramatic repertoire, you were cast in the original Nimrod production of the Venetian Twins as Florindo. Cast opposite you as Lelio was a young Melbourne actor called Tony Taylor. How was your chemistry on the rehearsal? <laughs> <laughs> Tony Taylor's name kept coming up. Um, in, I was doing Inner Voices at Nimrod and a show called The Hills Family Show came up uh, from the Pram Factory. And we had one night off, which was the Sunday, and all our cast said, we're all going down to the Bondi Pavilion to see this Pram Factory group. And I said, I don't want to go and see those hippies. <laughs> those ragamuffins. So, so I didn't go and see Tony Taylor's great hit from Melbourne and then uh, I was doing a playwrights conference in 79 and Kerry Dwyer um, the director was directing me in something and on the last day I was saying goodbye to her she said do you know an actor called Tony Taylor I said there's that name again no and she said you two would be good together and I had this vision of this sort of six foot three blonde surfy in my <laughs> I don't know why and uh, I turned up for the first day. Oh, and then John Bell rang me and offered me Venetian Twins. And he said, oh, there's all these people in it. There's Drew Forsyth and Valerie Bader and Annie Byer and Jennifer McGregor. Oh, I'd worked with them all. He said, and I'm bringing somebody, somebody up from Melbourne. His name's Tony Taylor. There's that name again. And um, he, on the first day of rehearsal, Terry Clark, who was the composer of the Venetian Twins, said, Tony, I, I want to test your range. He said, can you sing something? Waltzing Matilda. So Tony sang, um, once a jolly flagman can buy a billabong. Terry went higher, and he went, under the shade of a cool tree. And he went higher. So they sang as they watched and went to tell him. He went higher. You'll come a waltzing Matilda with me. And he went higher. Waltzing Matilda. Well, Tony has a, one of those ranges that never stops. <laughs> and he got higher and higher and higher without a break. And 
he started to make up the words because panic started to set in. <laughs> and he killed off every jumbuck and he, there, there were squatters in the billabong. It was one of the funniest pieces of improv I have ever, ever seen. And, and at the end of it, we all knew we had a Joan Sutherland range and could write comedy material. <laughs> and uh, so I thought Tony Taylor was a genius and 36 years down the track, I still think he Following the Venetian Twins, you appeared in several other musicals, Candide, with, with T.T. and Quast um, and uh, John Ewing. Yes. And yes. I, I Love My Wife. And then you were cast in a role that proved to be another defining, career-changing time for you, the role of Arnold in Harvey Feinstein's uh, Torch Song trilogy, for Jason Williamson's. Now, how did you find out that you had the role in this particular show? Uh, I, it, I was told I was going to... I wasn't going to hear for a very long time. I, I, I did three auditions, uh, and suddenly on a Sunday morning, there was a knock on our door, and it was Sue Natras, who had been the stage manager on Oliver, and who had seen me through my father's death and had looked after my mother during that time, which was very traumatic. And now she was... Um, sort of a, a very high position at J.C. Williamson's and she was standing there with a bottle of champagne and a bunch of flowers and she said, I wanted to tell you myself that you have the lead in Torch Song Trilogy, which was the first time I was above the title in a commercial show. Um, so it was very touching, Beautiful. touching moment. Um, it was Robert Alexander, who again, who uh, had seen the show in, in New York, I believe, and uh, who said, this might interest you. So uh, uh, I, I, I have to depend on people to give me jobs or to point me towards jobs because my, my opinion of myself is very low and I, my instinct is to suggest other people. Well, like the producers, it was the same, wasn't it? You didn't want to go for the producers. No, I turned down that audition three times. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And finally, Tony said to me, don't you think this is a compliment that they keep coming back to you and asking you to audition? He said, you owe them the courtesy of at least turning up. And, and, oh, right. <laughs> and uh, so I'd, I never ever know what's good for me. And uh, so I need people to, to do that. that way. What was it like in 1983? I mean, you know, Gabies is about to open here at the Eternity Theatre and, and gay queer theatre is a much more prevalent thing now. But to play an open and proud out gay man in 1983 is a bit different to playing one now. What was, what was that experience like? Well, we, Fred Niles said he was going to pick up the show. And so we were all waiting on opening night for, for this huge drama to happen. And it didn't. So we, we were quite disappointed. Um, but uh, it was fascinating because opening night, the, 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 the mainstream press loved it and the gay press crucified it. And they said, what is this nonsense about a gay man wanting to be married and having children? This is not what gay people are about. They don't want to fit into the mainstream. They don't... You know, they are. We, we our, our our thing is that is that we are different. You know, so we were we were trashed pretty much by the gay press, and it's ironic now that, you know, the full circle that, or half circle, uh, that it's all about getting married and having kids, which um, is the subject of gays, which is about to open here in a couple of weeks. Right. So, so it's sort it sort of yeah, yeah. makes the play un. Um, 
revivable yeah. to a degree. It also and also the, it was written pre-AIDS, and there was that whole thing of him going into the back room and all that. Fred Miles in the house. He's in the house. <laughs> oh my God. Oh. <laughs> uh, so, uh, but it was interesting. We 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 sort of flopped in in Sydney, and J.C. Williamson's dropped the show, and it was towards the end of the the J.C. Williamson's as. Mm. as an entity mm. and our young um, our publicists at the time were, were John Frost and, and Ashley Gordon oh. um, but a, a Melbourne concern uh, Hocking and Woods picked us up and took us to Melbourne and they changed the marketing that was all they did mm. um, they, uh, they took away the emphasis of the drag queens and made it about families and we broke records mm. we ran for really the Universal the, we started the Universal we've switched to the National right, right. I think we went back to the Universal, yes. And then we did a return season to Sydney and we still died. After Torch Song, you started to dip your toe into the world of cabaret, you were both performing it, writing it and directing it. What, what is it about the cabaret form that, that excites you? Um, well, I was always interested in review and John Bell again gave Tony and I a wonderful opportunity in 1980 where he gave us the Christmas slot in the downstairs theatre at Belvoir, mm. and said, it's yours, write a show. So uh, we, we looked at the old Philip Theatre reviews and the American reviews and the English reviews, and uh, Tony had a dream. He had a dream <laughs> that uh, we were throwing a party for an audience and we were playing party games and we, we had a pantomime and we had puppet shows and all that. So we... That was the show we wrote, You and the Night in the Housewife. With Deirdre With Deirdre Rubenstein and Robin Mose. Mm. And it was actually done by other companies around the country. And, and uh, so that opened the door to interacting closely to an audience. But I, I didn't see myself as a cabaret performer. I became interested in writing for other people. People started to come to me. Like Geraldine and, and Nancy yeah, and David Atkins. Yeah, and, and Nick Enright started throwing people my way and... and uh, so suddenly this career, again, was decided for me by other people. And uh, I was never able to write for myself. I've tried as recently as this year, last year, to write a show for myself and couldn't do it. But I seemed to be able to write very clearly for other people. Mm. Um, well, after Googling you for the last week, I think I'm ready to go. I'll, I'll give that to <laughs> you and take 10%. Thank you very much. Um, one of, one of your cabaret compatriots had this to say about your time together at the Tilbury, which was a fantastic cabaret venue in Sydney. Gary Scale writes, If my memory is reliable, it wasn't too hard to get Sheldon interested in performing on the two-metre space, which was the Tilbury stage. Jen Lemon and Max Lambert probably convinced him, and the concept proposed was The Amazing Browns, a unique style of story-driven cabaret. It was then easy to get Sheldy on board for the Christmas pantos. These were such happy shows, little budgets, favours begged, sets and costumes sewed and constructed by friends and family, and audiences bent on having a silly, those are the operative words, evening before Christmas. Two of my faves being You Beauty and the Beast and Sunset Boulevard, the Panto. The latter saw Sheldon resplendent in red caftan and turban, a style his mother occasionally favoured, giving his Norma dental dam. 
Norma's return to the studio was as difficult as Gloria Swanson's. Her disintegration complete when sacked from or was complete when sacked from Home and Away and removed as hostess on Wheel of Fortune. <laughs> it was the trip to Paranoid Studios, though, I cherish most. We wrote it in 15 seconds and never discussed it after that. <laughs> two, two stools and a steering wheel as Max drove Norma to Paranoid Studios along a treacherous obstacle course as La Norma applied her makeup. To this day, I only have to see an eyelash curler and I'm a mess. <laughs> Did you have a fun time with the Tilbury? Was it a great Oh, great it, it was an absolute joy. Uh, Tony had done a couple of Christmas shows there and there was sort of a, a pattern that they always used to do, like a fairy tale. And Gary said, you've got to come, you've got to come and do one of these shows. And I went, oh, I don't... And then the musical of Sunset Boulevard was about to open. And I said, what if we do it as a pantomime and we make... Joe, the William Holden character, like Dick Whittington, played by... And we got Penny Cook. And we had Dick Whittington went, got lost in Beverly Hills, was going to become the mayor of Beverly Hills and, and ended up at Norma Desmond's home. And Max was... Max von Buttons was Gary. And, um, and, and Penny spoke in rhyming couplets the entire time, like it was a Christmas pantomime. And... We just ignored it and, and were in the film of something. <laughs> and then at the end, I shot Dick Whittington and Max said, we must escape. There is only one place where Madam has never been heard of, Australia. <laughs> and, we, we, and the second act was about Norma having to start her career again and there were only jobs like play school, hosting play school. <laughs> um, or... Um, Yes, well, being a hostess on Wheel of Fortune. And, uh, yes, so, but we had a hard time selling it to the owners of the Tilbury because they were so, so locked into the idea of the children's show thing. Um, so they were, they were very nervous about this strange change of direction. But it became such a, a hit that uh, they wanted every film then, you know, turned into a, a panto. So yeah, right. we, we had free slather after that. That's it was excellent. great, yeah. How fun. In 1992, you played two roles that couldn't have been more different. O'Hara in Nick Enright's prison drama Mongols opposite John Howard at the ensemble and John Barrymore in I Hate Hamlet at one point opposite Guy Pearce at the MTC. You've talked a lot about, um, when people have asked you about your favourite roles, often I Hate Hamlet is one that comes up for you. What, what, what was it about that show and that role that, that you loved so much? Well, playing John Barrymore. Mm -hmm. and, uh, <laughs> and it was one of those, those lucky things that I, um, I studied him a lot and I was able to find his voice. Um, it, it sat there comfortably so that made things easy and uh, it, that wonderful Paul Rudnick script mm. and uh, working who wrote the Adams Family Values movies and, and yes and, In and Out with Kevin Klein. yes and, yes yes and um, and he was Libby Gelman Waxner in the, the premier the, in for premier magazine yes and and I got to do sword fights and, and stuff like that so it was a side that nobody had Mm. scene of me. And again, Noel Ferrier offered me that gig. Um, he was running Marion Street at the time. Mm. Uh, so it was people seeing a side of me that I hadn't thought of. Mm. You know, why would anybody see me as John Barrymore? So it was, I found it incredibly inspiring because I mean, having done Torch Song and 
hard gotten being known for that so roles like that than to do a role like that which you smashed and, and it was very hard because right. I, you know when you play a role like Torch Song and you have a big commercial success you think it's going to open a lot of doors for you and the very next project was me and my girl that I got sent for and I auditioned and I auditioned and I auditioned and it used to drive me nuts that I, I wasn't didn't seem to be getting any closer to it. And my mother went to an opening night at Her Majesty's and she saw Bill Marshall, the producer, and she actually said, as mothers do, why, why do you keep calling my son in for that audition? And he said, oh, I'm not going to give him that role because he was in that poof to play. And they just weren't going to say it to my face. Um, so I was, you know, flogging a dead horse. But you suddenly realise that there are certain prejudices and people... Don't tell you why you don't get jobs, mm. and that 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 was that was a huge stumbling block for for a lot of years. Yeah. Getting past my success in Torch Song. That's right, because you were so well known for it. Yeah, people mm. people you know don't have a lot of imagination. Mm. So when somebody hands you John Barrymore or something like that, you go yes, right, <laughs> thank you. Yeah, it was yeah. wonderful. It was fantastic. Um, you, you continued to do a lot of plays for Melbourne Theatre Company and STC after that. And in 2002, you performed in The Witches of Eastwick in Melbourne, um, at both opposite Geraldine Turner and Rosie Ash. You had a great time with, with both of them, I, I believe. I did, yes. Ger Geraldine, um, unfortunately, lost her voice during previews. And uh, Cameron McIntosh realised there was no way she could open the show. And he... <laughs> He sent her home to Sydney. We opened in Melbourne. And Geraldine was absolutely shattered. And he said, I'm going to bring out the woman who created it in the West End, Rosemary Ash. And Rosie was playing Madame Tenardier in the West End, in Les Mis. And she got a call before the, the Saturday matinee saying, we're putting you on a plane. You're coming out to do Witches of Eastwick, which she hadn't done. It had closed 10 months earlier. And so she arrived... And I met her in the dressing room on the Monday at five o'clock and uh, we had a quick chat and I said, do you want to run through anything? And she said, no. <laughs> I said, all right, I'll see you on the green then. <laughs> and we went out and we did the show and I came off and she said, you're very funny. <laughs> and I said, do you always sing like that without losing your voice? And she said, I've never lost my voice before, because she, she had a huge soprano belt that just kept going up into the hemisphere. And so we bonded immediately. And she was in the show for like two and a half weeks. And, uh, That's great. I actually have her vocal warm-up CD, and it is the fruitiest thing you've ever heard in your life. <laughs> <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, let's begin with some whistles. Yeah, she, she's real. I, I real actually have to wear yeah. like this your yeah, she like, created the role of Carlotta in Phantom of the Opera. Yeah. And, uh, so she's, she's very like that. Um, but she, she sang it wonderfully, but then Geraldine came back and Geraldine actually acted it better. Um, so it was, it was wonderful to have the, the two completely different interpretations. Carolyn O'Connor talks about when she did Showboat in um, London, and help me out here, she, the role, what's the, the two kind of... Ellie two, and Frank. Correct. So she uh, <laughs> she uh, was uh, she came in to replace someone who got sick, but she'd rehearsed with the assistant, you know, choreographer and whatnot. That the Frank, the guy playing Frank, that was wasn't available or was shooting a commercial. She's like, well, I've got to meet this Frank guy before we do our number. Like, you know, yeah, well, yeah, you'll meet him before the show. Get him, and you can run through. And she's putting her makeup on. She's like, where's this Frank guy? You know, and and I, oh yeah, he'll meet. You know. Like, 
Anyway, the show begins. She has not met this guy because he's running late. She meets him on stage in the number. Like, oh, hello, Ellie. Hello, Frank. <laughs> <laughs> They meet on stage, doing their number together. So. Nat- Nancy and I did this recently. Nancy Hayes and I were asked to do um, the Equity uh, Lifetime Achievement Award for Jill Perryman and, and uh, Kevin Johnson. And we, we did I'll Never Be Jealous Again from Pajama Game. But I was in, in Connecticut doing Hello, Dolly. And um, Nancy was, was out here. And we both learnt the number separately. And then we met in Simon Burke's apartment uh, the night before we had to fly to Melbourne. And we both had learnt the choreography from the movie. And we started to do it. And fortunately, we'd both learnt the same routine. (laughs) And Simon Burke was watching and he said, so obviously you've done this number for a very long time, for many years, have you? I mean, it was just... No, we just... We we lucked out. It was was great, yeah. Wonderful. After Witches, um, you had some health challenges during Witches and you returned to Sydney and you were like... And you determined to kind of embark upon a new health. I regime. did. I mean, I, I always, as I told you, this, this self-esteem problem has plagued me all my life. And um, so, yes, I, but my friends used to call me the walking time bomb um, because I, I drank a lot, I smoked a lot, and I did a lot of drugs. And uh, I think everyone was just waiting for me to, like, explode mid-sentence in the street. (laughs) And uh, I stopped smoking uh, for noises off. I was a -a two-back-a-day smoker. And I thought, I'm never going to be able to run up and down all those stairs. You know, this is silly. I'm, I'm getting towards 50 and I've got to start being serious. And uh, then, just before witches, I got pancreatitis. And I went to the hospital and they said, do you drink a great deal? And uh, I said, I drink regularly. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> and uh, they said, it might be an idea to stop because it might kill you. And uh, it was interesting because I went, all right, and it actually wasn't a problem. It was like, oh, I just stopped. Which I think everybody was surprised because <laughs> they thought it was going to be me, you know, in a padded cell going, where's the gin? And that didn't happen at all. I, it, so I, I think it was just a habit. Uh, and then, but I, I wasn't losing the weight. I was carrying a lot of weight and I just expected I'd suddenly get thin when the booze stopped. And that didn't happen. And one of the girl dancers said, have you considered you might be addicted to carbohydrates? I went, hmm. And so I started to change my eating plan. So I suddenly got totally clean of everything. Um, And, you know, I I was carb-free and grog-free and cigarette-free and drug-free. And then I injured my back. During, During Witches of Eastwick, being clever. Um, I was, my character was supposed to be killed by getting his tie caught in the garbage disposal, the electronic garbage disposal in a sink. And I thought, wouldn't it be great if I actually did a headstand in the sink? And, and I did, and the whole sink would truck off into the wings. And one night I did this headstand and I heard a snap in my spine. And I had to stay there for the whole thing. And I came off and all, everything was fine and I got to the end of the run and then I came back to Sydney and I was lifting my suitcase out of the boot of the taxi and my back went. 
and it turned out I'd done completely two vertebrae. And I went to a physio who said, oh, we're going to have to operate and fuse. And I said, what does that mean? Well, you'll never dance again. I I might not do that. So I went and found a holistic healer who said, I can do this. It's going to take 12 months if you don't move. So we made up a bed in the lounge room because our bedroom was upstairs and I lived on the couch for 12 months and three times a week had that strange thing where they just sort of do that over your head a lot. Um, (laughs) And 12 months to the day my back was healed and almost immediately afterwards I got the producers, Mm. which was all tap dancing. And so... And now you was felt and off the carbs you get to the crowd. I was felt, I was off carbs, I was sober. And it's it's like the universe was preparing me for this next stage of my career, Mm. which started with the producers, Mm. the show I didn't want to do. And uh, originally you thought you might be a good... I auditioned for for Max Bialystok, and I don't think John Frost even sent the tape overseas, (laughs) personally. Um, So uh, he had his mind set on me playing Roger Debris. And so I I went and did that, and I I didn't enjoy it, but everybody was saying, you know, this is the role you were born for, and I I couldn't find my way into it. I just thought it was very one-dimensional. Really? When you were doing it? Yeah, yeah. I was... Magnificent. I, I found... I couldn't find yeah. any depth to it, and I just yeah. yet you won every single theatre award. Well, it was extraordinary. You know, suddenly yeah. I was back in the big musicals mm. again, and then while we were doing that, Grant Pirro said, "Simon Phillips is um, doing a workshop of Priscilla, Queen of the Desert, as a musical." He said, "You could play that part." I said, "You idiot! It's a bus." <laughs> <laughs> But, uh, but I hadn't worked with Simon Phillips and the offer came and they said it's 10 days in Melbourne and I thought well this might get me into the Melbourne Theatre Company and it was the strangest piece because we, we got down there and there was this script that had nothing to do with the film and it was all about a director having a meeting um, with all these business people and him saying I want to do a new Australian musical, and all these business people saying, well, you should base it on a famous Australian film, and that will get people in. Break a Morant, or something like that. He said, I want to do Priscilla, Queen of the Desert, and these executives said, any film but that. <laughs> and he said, no, I want to do it. And they said, all right, well, first you've got to get the permission from the three people that the original movie was based on. And this director said, the movie was based on three real people? Yes. One of them's dead, One of them um, has disappeared and one of them is Carlotta. (laughs) And so then the next scene was this director going to a drag show and there was Carlotta drunk on stage going, Hi, darlings, and they made that film of my life, Priscilla Green, and they gave my role to Effin Terrence Stamp. And and we're sitting there reading this script going... And then we acted out scenes from the film of Priscilla as Carlotta, and the tag was the director was the Hugo Weaving right, part, right. and it was his Looking son. Back, yeah, yeah, well, we worked on that for two days. and <laughs> And Simon Phillips went home and put the film in the cassette and took it all down. 
in longhand, said, this is what we're going to do. And um, it, was, it was good fun because he was, everybody was so busy trying to get the numbers together and work out how we were technically going to do this. And uh, I was going home at night and looking at the script and going, oh, that scene might work better there. And that bit of thing, and I was sort of dramaturging it at home in, in my flat. And I go in the next day and say, Simon, what do you think of this? Great, get that typed up. <laughs> so I sort of had a lot of input yeah, yeah. into it at yeah. the time, and and got to pick my own song. Actually, well, you've jumped where I was going to go. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. Um, to that point, Gary McQuinn, who is the executive producer of Priscilla, right right to that point, actually actually says, I won't read all of it, but it's lovely. Working with Tony Sheldon has been a privilege. His role in the creation and further success of Priscilla has never been fully acknowledged. From the first workshops, his generous and informed contributions to the book and music were significant. And his Bernadette was a revelation. We've now had 15 separate productions of Priscilla throughout the world with more to come. And clearly those original productions hit an indefinable tipping point with audiences and critics. But this I know. Tony was in, was in each of those original productions and his spellbindingly authentic, multi-dimensional and moving performance was instrumental in our subsequent success. With Tony in the driver's seat, literally, we crossed over from a niche audience to a mainstream general public wonderful word-of-mouth recognition and thence to the world. Um, and he doesn't want to get to the latter, but, but it's true. I mean, when you are part of a workshop, you have a massive input in, into what happens and and they are blessed that they had someone like you who would go home, I think, and move things around. And Simon's very collaborative, isn't he, also? He so, is, he is. Sadly, we all had to sign our lives away. Uh, we had to sign a bit of paper that said we made no financial claim on, on anything. But that's sort of pretty standard now mm. around the world because um, a, a lot of actors find a lot of their own stuff going into shows and, uh, you know, we'll try and make a claim on it later. But we were told from the very beginning, no, you don't... You don't share in the finances of this. But they, they believed in me and they kept me on in that show for five years. Mm -hmm. and 17, 50 performances? I, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, I really couldn't believe my luck with that. I mean, that so rarely happens. And uh, I thought when they took me to London, which was an experience in itself, um, <laughs> that that was that was going to be the pinnacle. Mm. But when I left the show, I resigned from the show in London, and then they said, well, you will come to Broadway. It was like, what? Um, that had never happened. Uh, shows, Australian shows had gone to Broadway, but never with the original star. Todd didn't get to go with Boy From Oz. Uh, so we made history. Mm. Uh, and so many times they stuck up for me. You know, Michael Crawford was desperate to play Bernadette in London. There's a story that they actually, the production team went out to his house and he got into full drag <laughs> and apparently looked hideous. <laughs> and they were driving away going, whoa. <laughs> never seen anything like that. Boy, wasn't that a lucky mistake? And Simon's phone rang and he said, I found another wig! Come back! <laughs> um, <yeah. laughs> uh, 
you know, Ian McKellen was being talked about at some stage, and you know, I mean, extraordinary people. But yeah. Simon Phillips and Gary McQueen stuck by me. Going, was, going back a bit before we get overseas, what, what that opening week was incredible. I mean, Dean Bryant was the associate director here tonight. Your first preview, I think, went for like four hours. The bus broke down. No, the, you know, it's, it's even weirder than that because um, we, we had to fight for billing. Um, we, we, we weren't given billing, the three actors, because they said, no, we're not going with stars. We're going with actors. And so it was myself and Jeremy Stanford and Daniel Scott. Um, the, the bus is the star. The bus is the star of the show. And it's going to be this revolutionary technical marvel that people will flock from miles around to see this bus. And um, so we get to the, the first preview and the star won't come out of its dressing room. <laughs> <laughs> the bus breaks down. And uh, so we, we all stood around going, well, what are we going to do? And uh, I think it might have been a charity thing. I think it was a big AIDS night, so we, we couldn't just send everybody home. And so we said, let's do the show without the bus. So Simon went out and made one of his trademark hilarious speeches before the show, explaining the situation. And we literally, when the curtain went up and the bus was supposed to come, we all mimed, this is the bus. <laughs> and we stood in the centre of the stage and I went like that. <laughs> and when there was supposed to be a prop, we were supposed to get somebody to throw it on from the wing. You know, and we... Lucky you'd done Sunset Boulevard. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. So... It, the, the show, they were still standing and screaming at the end and that was when we realised we had a show because we actually did Priscilla without the bus. Yeah. And uh, we had something. And we did two or three previews without the bus. And, you know, we got quite good at the, the mining aspect. <laughs> um, I, saw, I saw the show in Australia, I think about six, six or seven times. A little bit obsessed. Uh, being a friend of many of you in it. But each time I saw it, your performance was as fresh minted and alive as, as it was on opening night. What, what was the secret to that? It's a, it's a road film. Uh, and every... It's, I used to liken it to the faraway tree. Do you remember the Ian Blyton story where it's, these kids climb a tree and a cloud will come and land at the top of the tree and it brings a different land every time with, with, with new characters. And I used to liken doing Priscilla as to being in the faraway tree, that every stop of the bus was a, this interesting new group of people. And um, so I just thought, if I don't project forward at any point during the evening, mm. if I just stay in real time and, and try not to let my mind wander and go, oh, it's going to be interval soon and I can... Yeah, and for five years, I was actually able to do that. Mm. And every night came as a surprise to me. Um, so everything, you, you responded to what was happening rather than imposing your dramatic arc on the piece. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I did. Wow. Um, it was also interesting having, having that amount of sort of muscle on the show, I suppose, in that it felt like my baby. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I, I got a bit proprietary about it. I, I once saw fit to write a letter to a member of the cast who missed a performance for rather spurious reasons. You're, you're pretty strong generally on discipline, aren't you? Like, I, you're not a guy who takes shows off. No, no. And, and, and I, a few people have 
felt my wrath. <laughs> um, so it should be. Yeah, yeah. One, one of your co-colleagues, uh, Jeremy Stanford, who played Tick in that production, had this to say about you in the show. Watching Sheldon go to work on his extraordinary Bernadette each night was like watching a fine craftsman at his tools, except that in this case it was a singing, disco-dancing comic virtuoso with a wig and fake tits. He schooled me in stagecraft, commitment, and how to marshal a cast around you like a warrior leading the charge into battle. It goes without saying that he's loved. If you've ever worked with him, you'll know what I mean. And although he has the gift of making all he works with feel special, I truly feel that I am. Because in that particular show, the demands Daniel, Tony and I faced playing that trio of queens made us feel like we'd been shot out of a gun every night, and together we'd hang on, Tony leading the way with gusto, courage and brilliance. We shared something ineffable, ineffable but profound. He is forever my brother and I love him. That's beautiful. Um, well, why not? Jeremy But Why do you think Australian audiences responded to it so much and it was such a huge hit in this country? What do you think it was about it? Well, it's it's like anything Australian. I mean, the 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 score I think did a lot of the job for us. We we thought long and hard about how to make whether it was going to be an Australian score, a new Australian score, mm. and then we thought about well, keeping some of the songs and then writing other plot songs. And we thought, no, we can't let it fall between two stools. We've got mm. to make a commitment one way or the other. And I was a bit grumpy about the jukebox aspect of it. Um, but it was realistic. Australian musicals written by Australians were not big money spinners. And it was, it was the difference between having a long run or closing in three weeks, basically. So we decided to go the Mamma Mia route. Well, the, the, from the first note of that audience, uh, of that, oh, uh, what's it called? Overture. Um, that the audience would start screaming, yeah, yeah. you know. So we, we won half the battle from mm -hmm. that point. And then to see those Australian characters that were, were beloved from the film, and everybody seems to embrace the drag thing, and it was that rough... The language was appalling, mm -hmm. you know. And uh, so there, there were so many things that, that shocked and delighted the audience, mm. and it was infectious. I remember those, those fabulous road signs. It still like had a smut factor. It was Top Ride and Rudy Hill and Cockburn as you were driving past, wasn't it? Exactly. Those, yeah, those yeah, yeah. Things. But you were very full on. I've read about making sure that the way the gay characters were represented. Well, you said, in fact, I was very protective of what we were saying about the gay community. I was very vocal if there was stuff that was going to show us in a bad light, and if there was any influence I had in that respect, I used it. So it was that was important to you too that it wasn't the gay voice and it was still strong and it real. It was. I mean, I can't remember the specific thing, but I do remember saying during the workshop, I don't think we should put that out there. There was something about... There was a quote about what our Prime Minister says. It was something about our Prime Minister says this about gay people. And I said, I don't think we should go there. Um, and it was, it was just wonderful because whenever I did suggest something like that, Simon absolutely went with it. Mm. You know, I really felt I had a voice mm. in that show. Then we got to London and everybody sort of lost their nerve a bit. Uh, it didn't help that the, the English performers didn't really get the show and they sort of treated it like a panto. And there was sort of a bit of a yuck-yuck factor and everybody wanted to be funny and... There was, we sort of lost focus with it a bit. And suddenly, like, 
the Queen appeared with a corgi in the middle of the desert. And we were starting to change all the brand names to English brand names. And, and I actually, I think it was just before the first preview, I said to the production team, I think we've got to have the courage of our convictions with this because if it's not what it is, we're nothing. We're, you know, it's, it's such a unique piece. It's the ragamuffin quality of the show. If it becomes too slick or if it becomes too generalised, we've lost that special thing that makes it Priscilla. Mm-hmm. And uh, so they sort of half-compromised. Actually, Gary, Gary McSween did say, the producer of the show, read, read that... Oh, where's this great thing that he said? Uh, I always regarded Tony as the creative conscience of Priscilla. We never crossed swords. Tony is far too gracious to allow that. But my fear of his gentle disapproval was certainly a factor when I was weighing up commercially expedient decisions. <laughs> which, was, which was wonderful. And working with Simon, was, was that a wonderful experience for you? It was. I mean, Simon, like, like most of the top directors, tends to leave you alone. Um, but sometimes he will just say one thing that you go, oh, right. And... Uh, for for me, it was. I, I think it was just. Don't forget, she's a lady. I was getting a bit strident <laughs> at some point because um, you know I had lines like, you know, why don't you light your tampon and blow your box apart, <laughs> and uh, which my mother, you know, used to <laughs> used to despair that her son was standing up there in a frock saying things like this. Um, but uh, sometimes I would find myself getting a little raucous, and Simon would just say, "Don't forget, she's a lady," and. That sort of that one note kept me going for five years, <laughs> you know, because you go, that's the spine of it. She sees herself as Greer Garson, mm. you know. Um, so wonderful. Well, he's a fan of yours as well, and he says Sheldon is possibly the most consummate professional I have ever worked with. What astonishes me is his ability to match technical exactitude with human compassion. He can make you weep for the inner life of the character while effortlessly, effortlessly counting the bars till he has to sing next. I find him breathtaking. As a performer and a human being, he seems to me to embody everything I admire and love about the theatre. Uncharacteristically nice assignment. <laughs> Normally there's 27 levels, levels of irony. To exactly. Get to yeah. Yeah. Now, and when you were in London too, there, there is a thing about... London musical theatre because I mean many people don't know this but London ensemble members are paid very badly you, I, mean, I mean unionism is not compulsory here either but it's being part of the union is not a big deal I know. was actively discouraged from joining equity mm. when I the, the very first thing when I turned up for rehearsal the stage manager came to me on the first day of rehearsal and said now what shows are you taking off and I said I don't do that and he said, yeah, you have to. We don't pay holiday pay here, so you've got to take 28 performances off in the course of your 12-month contract. Uh, and I went home to Tony and ranted and raved, I haven't worked 50 years in this business to be told that I have to... And he said, we haven't been to Paris. <laughs> So I went in the next day and went, I'm taking that week off, we're going to Portugal, mm-hmm. that week off, we're going to Paris, that week we're going to New York, that week off, we're going to think. And then I said to, where do I join equity? Oh, you don't, you don't want to do that, the production manager said. 
So I went to an equity meeting and it was the most terrifying experience. It was Romans, Christians and lions. Um, the, the, the equity um, person who came in to talk to us was crying because everybody was just shouting at her. You've done nothing for us. And this person was cowering. It was like, what the hell is going on here? And they, they were all on this minuscule wage. Many of them were second jobs. Many of them had second jobs. They they were all coming in asleep and they all had their travel folders open planning their next holiday and we were told from the after opening night there was always one man and one woman off because that was the roster. Um, You know, they were off having their holiday. So I never saw the original cast again. And uh, within three weeks the show fell apart. There'd be people doing the time step up the back. You're supposed to be in a Broken Hill pub and there'd be some queen up the back doing the time step. <laughs> What's going on? And uh, the stage management would be in the wings trying to make Jason Donovan laugh during numbers. And, and um, the noise, the noise backstage, everybody talking. There was just no sense of we are here to do the best we can. So I, I was shattered because well, there we were at the Palace Theatre and that had a sign saying, you know, through this portal walks the greatest performers. And I went, really? Um, I, I used to come into the dressing room, I'd cry for five minutes, then I'd put on the false eyelashes. Um, so after about three months, I, I rang Simon and Gary and said, I don't belong here. Uh, I'm going to play out my contract, but then I'm going to go. And I think they were really shocked because they thought I was in for the long run. But I, I just thought, I couldn't, couldn't unite the company. I, I, I used to try and go and visit everybody in their dressing room before the show, as, as was my wont. And it was like, I, I always felt I, made, I left no footprint in that city. It was, they just didn't give us stuff. So, and the show ran quite happily without me for two years. Um, and it was very funny because I snuck in to see it um, about a month after I'd left the show. I, Tony and I stayed on as tourists for a while and all the ushers were watching me. They all stood waiting to see my, my reaction because it had really sort of, you know, suffered a bit. Yeah. Uh, it's funny you're talking about you going and knocking on the doors and saying hello to me. I mean, you are famous for that, of, of being... I mean, you, you flee as soon as the curtain's down. I mean, absolutely. You often get a stage door and... Oh, no, he's gone. Sheldon's gone. Yeah. And uh, you're not a big opening night guy, but but backstage you know everybody's names. You say hello to everybody. You're you're very famous for it. And I'm actually going backwards a bit. During the producers, if I recall this correctly, you and Tony Taylor, who played Franz Lieken often in the show, would have rather because you didn't do the big Thirsty Thursdays thing, but you'd have a dinner each week where you didn't from the casting crew of 60, 70 people, you'd invite five different people for, who didn't maybe know each other, and you'd have a dinner party. It, it was like, a soup night. A soup night. It was Tony's, right, right, right. Tony's idea yeah. that we would, we would have a, a, a soup and a dessert right. and, and, and wine for, for them. And we, we'd pick five people from the cast who, yeah, who probably, you know, one of the chorus girls, one of the, the principal men, or something, you know, and, and put them all together. Such and uh, they started... We did it every Thursday or something. Like speed dating for a musical it, it was a bit. It was a bit. <laughs> but that work ethic comes from the J.C. Williamson's days when, you know, the, the chorus girls had to wear gloves 
and uh, you were fined if you if you were one minute late for the half hour. Mm. And um, you know the girls in My Fair Lady, it was a firing offence to get a suntan. You know, so I I, I suppose my work ethic was stronger than my my talent um, from a very early from a very early time. But but mentoring young people has been. A huge part of your life. I mean, you've taught WAPA a lot. You've lectured. Well, it's always it's always been a weird thing because I I never studied and I've always felt like a fraud if ever I've I've been invited to teach at NIDA. So I've always said I I I can't do that because I don't know the mechanics of it. And Tony was the head of acting at NIDA for for quite a long time. So I really admire people who can do that. But I just feel like an idiot. All I can talk about is what I've love. done. Mm. But what I did do at WAPA was direct a couple of shows and that was an absolute joy because mm. you, you are passing something on um, to, to the students that mm. way and, and it was lovely coming into Priscilla. Uh, I knew out of a cast of 25, I knew 22 of them. Mm. Um, you know, I taught them or I'd worked with them and I said, there'll always be someone to have a cup of tea with yeah. uh, in this cast. But... Uh, yeah, I, I. Yes, I don't. I don't know what else yeah, to say. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So after the London experience, you then took Priscilla to Toronto for a while, and then eventually, after some wrangling with Actors Equity, uh, you were playing the role in New York. What was it like rehearsing with the New York company? Was it a very different vibe to London? It was bliss. It was exactly like the Australian company. It was the the Australian company was tight as a drum, as most Australian companies are. I have to say that. Um, the, the level of discipline and skill, and we've always, that's always been mm. our great talent is, is our performers, and and the, the, it was like getting home again. They they were fabulous, and and this time I think the 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 production team knew what we had, and they took more risks, and they stuck by. Uh, I mean, we brought Jerry Mitchell on board um, at the behest of our American producers um, to sort of nominally be the production supervisor but most of his suggestions went unheeded because I think Simon and Dean and Andrew Hallsworth sadly Ross Coleman had died so he never got to see his show go to Broadway which was it was a great sadness for all of us but Andrew you know (laughs) carried the flag wonderfully um so it, it it was it was wonderful. And De- Dean actually talks about the discipline of the ensemble in Broadway. Like, if they weren't on the floor, they wouldn't be making noise. But they'd be in corner doing you know push ups and ab work. Like, <laughs> no 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 minute was ever kind of because it's a hard town. Like you've got to be on your game. Absolutely, people come from all over the world mm. to come to New York. Mm. It's the best of the best, and it's an industry town because it's the greatest um, uh, the tourist dollar for Broadway is up in the billions every year. So they really take it seriously. Mm. And to come from here, where it's not taken seriously, um, you know, was was a real eye-opener for me. Mm. Uh, and the, the, the warmth of the welcome I got. Mm. And it's not just doing the show. It's all the attendant things that, that come with doing a Broadway Your show. The Macy's Parade. The Macy's you... Parade and all the, 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 the television um, things. Uh, one of the most exciting was we appeared on the, the Today Show. And, of course, I remember it was probably about 15 years earlier that we started getting Brian Gumbel and Jane Pauley, and they'd, they'd run it at midnight here, the early morning Today Show. So suddenly we were appearing on it in that outside Rockefeller Centre mm. space. 
And we were doing uh, the first act finale, the big Gumby number, mm. and it was free. I remember, I remember watching it and you were like... Absolutely. <laughs> there we were wearing little tiny skimpy frocks. And, of course, it was pre-dawn because you rehearse at 5am in the dark. And they said to us, we'd, we'd done the number several times and the crowds were starting to build up around us and suddenly they said, we're actually, we've got time to do another number. They said, um, so we're going to do We Belong, the number with the three leads. And uh, they said, you know, we, you've got time after doing the Gumby number. If, if you scurry and do the change in like seven minutes, uh, you can do this number. So we, we practised the change and all that. And I, mine was quite quick because I was just in a pretty blue dress. Um, <laughs> but they were all in, you know, silly clothes. Um, and uh, so I'm standing there in, in Rockefeller Centre in the dark, in the cold, and I'm looking around. And there's Will Swenson playing Tick, who was raised as a Mormon in Utah. <laughs> and there's Nick Adams in playing his first principal role after eight years in the chorus. He's from Erie, um, near Lake Erie in Ohio. And... Uh, I'm standing there looking around and I said, look at these buildings. I said, this is like a microcosm of New York. I said, that building is from the 60s. I said, but that building's from the 20s. And I said, that one's probably like 1910 and that would be from early 50s. I said, this is like, just standing here, this is like a microcosm of the whole town. And then they said, um, OK, here's the music and the three of us are standing there and we... We get to the, the chorus. We belong to the light. We belong to the thunder. And the sun came up oh. behind those buildings. And as I said, two country boys and the Aussie, we couldn't look at each other because we all started to cry. And it was just like, how did we get here? Uh, that was probably more exciting than, than opening night. Right? <laughs> <laughs> And um, you clearly adored working with Will and Nick. You had a, had a Will family. is my landlord. All oh, right. Will and his wife Audra McDonald, <laughs> six-time Tony Award winner. <laughs> she can't find one of them. <laughs> I didn't take it. It's not in my flat. Uh, actually, um, I, I Will. I wrote to Will and actually got this response. This back is like this is Will. your life. <laughs> no way, B. Will had this to say about Tony. I would describe my two years of working alongside Tony Sheldon as mostly endurable. <laughs> Sharing the stage with Tony was only occasionally painful, but was always an exercise in concentration. It was a miracle that Tony remembered his lines almost every single night. <laughs> and his choreography, well, he absolutely gave it his best shot. <laughs> his true talent, I feel, lies in his ear. For two full years of performing Priscilla, Queen of the Desert on Broadway, Tony's Australian accent was virtually perfect. <laughs> we all marvelled at the consistency and polish of his well-honed accent work. His singing happened on stage, performance after performance. <laughs> and we all witnessed it happening. Such stamina. Tony is a lesson to us all in his ability to do the show he is in. <laughs> 
Many actors would have quit after so many terrible reviews, but not Tony. <laughs> his high opinion of his own work has kept him churning out performances year after long, long years. <laughs> P.S. The above is stupidly false, and Tony Sheldon is one of the greatest men I've ever shared the stage with. He is a true professional, a legendary talent, and a beautiful, generous, and handsome human being. Except for when he has a goatee. That looks hideous. Like <laughs> <laughs> I'll get a photo and send it to Will. Later. Oh, bless him. Um, now, the mother life, the Tony Award. When you, when you were... Where were you when you found out you'd been nominated for a Tony Award? It's, it's very weird. There's, it's, there's, it's award season, which is... I've never known anything like it. Um, it's four weeks. And they all happen at the same time. There's the Drama Desk, the Drama League, the Outer Critic Circle, the Tony, and the Theatre World Awards. And I got nominated for them all. And they all happen, like, one after the other. And then you spend the month having to do... The luncheons. The luncheons, the press, Mm -hmm. the thing. So I, I got up early because they they do the announcement on television at 8am and I thought there's a possibility you know I thought I'm not going to be stupid about this there's a possibility and but I always knew in my heart I wasn't going to win because I was nominated for the Olivier in London and I knew I was going to win because I was and I didn't win the helpman here because um, Iota was doing Hedwig and he scooped the pool on everything and uh then I go to London and I'm following Douglas Hodge in La Cage around town. And then I come to New York and... Kinky Boots. Kinky right. Boots. No, Kinky Boots hadn't opened. Oh. But Doug had won the year before and, and Hairspray or something had won. So I was following two drag performances. I thought, they're not going to give it to another bloke in a frock. <laughs> um, it was just, you know, logical. It wasn't going to happen. But I got the nomination. And as everybody said, you will now forever be known as Tony nominee Tony Sheldon. They can't take that away from you. Um, so I, I absolutely freaked out about the whole thing. And the first one I had to do, the first press luncheon was for the Drama Desk Awards. And I was walking to the restaurant that I had to do it and I, I stopped in the street and I started to sob... And I was going, I'm not worthy. This, uh, this, when, how did this all just happen? You know, This is insane. And I got closer to the room and standing outside the theatre was Jeremy Ewart, who had been in the Australian production of Priscilla. And he was in a suit with a lanyard thing. I said, what are you doing here? He said, I've, I've been asked to welcome everybody. It was a gig. And it was like an angel had been put there to just go, calm down, you're among <laughs> friends, this is not any big thing. And just seeing Jeremy relaxed him, and he told me the same thing because he was standing there going, all these stars. Because <laughs> yeah. um, it is terribly intimidating to be in the same room as, you know, the, that, that year there was Robin Williams, there was... Daniel Radcliffe, there were, you know, all these amazing people all standing on either side of you. Um, so, but the best one for me was the Theatre World Award. I was about to say, yeah. The Theatre World was an annual book, it still is, that ever since 1944, they do 
the whole Broadway season, the page of photos, forecast lists, all the understudies, all the stage management, length of the run, and then all the regional shows and the off-Broadway shows, shows that closed out of town, full schmear, right? And I've collected the whole series over the years because that's what I do. I'm an archivist. And I've, you know, I've been writing articles for theatre magazines and I've contributed to Currency Press histories of theatre. and So I win this award as one of the ten notable Broadway debuts. Uh, and I walked on stage and I said, I know who all of you are. <laughs> I said, you didn't know when you were starting off as a stage manager and working your way up to being a director or you were in the chorus and gradually getting small principal roles and then becoming a headliner, that somebody over the other side of the world was paying attention to this. I said, you might have been depressed at the way your career was going at some point, but you didn't know that you were inspiring somebody at the other side of the world. I said, and the dancers... The dancers who were in pyjama game, I said, and then suddenly you, you disappeared and you, you reappeared years later in Follies or, you know, Ballroom when you were older. I said, and, and I said, my poor partner who, who keeps, every time I get a new, um, find a new copy of the, the book from a, an antique shop and I'll wake him up at four o'clock in the morning and say, I didn't know Lilius White played a field mouse in The Whiz. <laughs> and... And I, I was saying this, and suddenly I started to hear this rumble go through the theatre. And we were in a big theatre. And then people started to applaud, and people going, yes, yes. And it was because a lot of people didn't even know what the Theatre World Award was. A lot of people would get the award and they'd say, oh, I don't even know what this is, I've never heard of this. And I sort of put the, the thing in perspective again. And... I got very emotional and I came off and the organisers said, you can come back every year. <laughs> and so for the next two years I presented and, and made speeches for other actors. And then I didn't hear anything from the, uh, the third year, so I dashed on the scene saying, I'm in town. And they said, oh, we've all been fired. The production team for the awards had been fired. So whoever's running it now has never heard of me, so I blame that gig. They'll <laughs> come back. Yeah, it. but that, that's, that's the one award that means something to me. Yeah. But the Tony Awards, they made us do a number from the show and yeah. they made me get into the full drag. Yeah. And then they said, oh, in your categories immediately after your number and we want you in your dinner suit. Oh, well, no. I said, I'm not going to win. I said, can't I just stand on the side of the stage? No. And so all day they made me... We, we've got four minutes. They made me get out of the full makeup and the thing and in my dinner suit, run back into the auditorium and they go, no, that was four minutes, five seconds. You've got to do it again. Kristen Chenoweth had two minutes, so stop complaining. Oh, <laughs> so it was a very stressful day. You live in New York now primarily. I and you do. You also have a house in Katoomba with, with Tony. You hold a green card on the basis of, of being an alien of extraordinary ability. Yeah. <laughs> you have your picture up in the Sardis restaurant between, I believe, Stockard, Channing and Patrick Page. They, they oh, move man. it around. Do they move it around? Yeah. yeah. Okay. I look like Bill Clinton. <laughs> um, and since being there, you've, you've, you've performed, uh, you've played Colonel Pickering in My Fair Lady for the Guthrie Theatre. You've been in Victor Victoria in Houston, Mr Magoo's Christmas Carol, the Julie Stein musical for the Actors Fund. And last year, 
Tony garnered wide critical acclaim for his role as Jeffrey Cordova, uh, opposite Brian Stokes Mitchell, Michael McKean, and Tracy Ullman in The Bandwagon for New York City Encores, which is kind of the equivalent of our production company, but similar. Yeah, well, production company is sort of based on, on, on Encores. encores. Yeah. Um, ben Brantley, the chief theatre critic of the New York Times, said of Tony's performance, The true life of the party is Mr Sheldon's Jeffrey Cordova, the art for art's sake's director. As incarnated with Twinkling Sheen by Mr Sheldon of Priscilla, Queen of the Desert fame, He's an irrepressibly stylish and fun-loving soul who wants everyone to get along and have a good time. Did you have a hoot doing that? That was show? my worst review. Oh. <laughs> Theatre Mania was better, which said, Sheldon is musical comedy personified, drawing laughs practically every moment he walks on stage. Not so bad. <laughs> good time doing that one? It was fantastic, because I was a replacement two days before rehearsal started. Roger Rees, who created the role of Nicholas Nickleby on Broadway and won the Tony for it, was supposed to do it, and uh, he got sick. And it was one of those roles that could have been written for me. Uh, it, it, it used everything in my skill set. And I, again, because of Priscilla, which I thought was going to open a lot of doors for me in New York, it in fact slammed a lot of doors for me because people said, oh, yes, we know what he does. They all thought I was a drag queen because they hadn't seen me do anything else. And so I thought, I, I've got to nail this one. Um, because I had to tap dance and I had to sing and I played Hamlet and I, I flew and I played the devil and, you know, and I sang seven numbers. And uh, so I had to learn it real fast and I just thought, this is a big audition. This, this, I just have to put my shoulders down now and stop worrying about the future and, and just go, this is what I do, New York. And so I got those reviews. Mm. Now I've just got to sit back and hope that leads to something. Mm. Because everybody's worried, no matter what level they're at in New York, everybody's terrified about their career and fretting about it. And mm. even people who are Broadway stars are, are going, what's next? I should be further along the rung. And mm. you just think, no, you've just got to... It's hysterical because a lot of Australians are going over there now and I've had young David Harris over there, you know, who was in Wicked and wonderful, Matthew, Matty Robinson, um, the composer, and they both uh, in the last few weeks had lunch with me and they were crying and going, I, I should be further along with... And I said, how long have you been here? Six weeks. <laughs> <laughs> I was telling Sheldon the other day, years ago I did an episode of Twisted Tales, the, the Brian Brown produced TV show, and... Um, in my episode, Rachel Ward, it was myself, Rachel Ward and Marshall Napier. It was filmed at the Grotto, the old restaurant in Kensington. And they were a married couple having problems and I was the, you know, the evil waiter. And one day at lunchtime, I was talking to Rachel Ward and I said, oh, did you have a nice evening last night? She said, oh, yeah. she said, and no disrespect to any of these wonderful people. But she said, oh, Sam Neill came around for dinner last night. And she said, oh, he was whinging. He was like, Harvey Keitel gets everything. Why didn't Harvey Keitel get Bad Lieutenant? I wanted to be in Bad Lieutenant. And she's like, Sam, you've just done Jurassic Park. He's like, it's a kid's movie. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. It never stops. It never stops. Laura Osnes, who was in the show, in the bandwagon with Tony, said, Tony is one of the most generous souls I've ever worked with. A pure professional, he walked in memorised on the first day of the bandwagon rehearsal, making instinctually brilliant choices and went on to truly steal the show in the best way possible. He was an audience and cast favourite. And the director of the show, Kathleen Marshall, who uh, directed Wonderful Town and... I've been emailing that. Are you sure? Uh, <laughs> 
Uh, she said, Tony is simply the classiest guy around. Besides the fact that he is an insanely gifted actor, singer, dancer and performer, he also happens to be a tremendously kind and generous man. I can't wait to work with Tony again this spring. He makes any room he is in much more elegant, more intelligent and more fun. What's happening in spring? Uh, a new Broadway-bound musical uh, based on the film Ever After. It was a Drew Barrymore, Angelica Houston piece based on the Cinderella story and I've been workshopping it um, over the last few years. That's hysterical, doing workshops, because everybody does it like during their day off. So you walk in and every Broadway star is in the room reading these little parts. And so I've done three of these things with the, the finest people. Yeah. It's been very, it's finally getting up um, at the Paper Mill Playhouse um, as, as soon, as, soon as I finish. That's My cool. work here. And so you're here, you, know, you were recently here to play uh, Lawrence, Lawrence Jemison in Dirty Rotten Scandals to yes. a great acclaim, and you're here to, to play the role of Don Quixote in uh, Man, Man of La Mancha. Mancha. Yes. What, what attracted you to that role? Well, um, I, I remember when I was young, and people used to, J.C. Williamson's used to bring out people like Madge Ryan in black comedy, and Ron Randell in uh, There's a Girl in My Soup, and Louis Fiander in 1776 and I didn't know who these people were and I had to have it explained to me that these were great Australian actors who had gone overseas to make their careers and they, they had they, they had made the bulk of their careers because there was no industry here in the 50s when they left and uh, that, that's always worried me mm. that you can go away and completely fall off the radar and uh, I'd seen Squabologic's work from Title of Show, where I, I just wandered in off the street one night uh, at the Seymour Centre and went, wow, this is good. And, and the direction was great and the performances were great. And then um, I worked with, with Jay's wife um, on um, Dirty Rotten Scoundrels. Mm -hmm. uh, Jess, Jess uh, was the sound technician. And so we kept in touch and she emailed me and said, are you going to be in Australia in February? I said, no. And uh, she said, oh, well, we're, we're doing Man of La Mancha. And I went, oh, I, I couldn't play that role, as, as I always do. Have you thought of Hugo Weaving? And uh, she said, no, we, we, we just want you to know you were our first and only choice. I said, um, I've had to listen to it. It's a bit high. And then she, she came back to me a couple of days later and they said, look, we're doing a sort of an experimental production of it where we're going to do it like it really Cervantes is in prison. So the, the instrumentation is going to be a couple of guitars and, you know, people banging things on things and it's going to be claustrophobic. And, That's you your know, Aldonza laughing up the back. Ah, and, uh, you know, and I thought, what a wonderful idea to go back to the way it was originally intended. And I thought, and, you know, flattery works wonders when people say you're our first and only choice. Um, that's how, when I directed Follies, that's how I got that extraordinary cast that I got, I got people out of retirement to do Follies because, you know, you write to Maggie Fitzgibbon and Glenda Raymond and say, you know, you owe it to people to see you. That, you know, and they go, I thank you, I'll be there on Monday. Um, so, you know, I, I thought... These people are crafty. And um, so I, I thought, yes, I, I want to work with these people. I want to be part of, of what they're doing. Right. So exciting. Um, you, you've spoken in, in some articles about some of the great shows that you've seen over the years, because you, you know, being a performer, but you're a great theatre-goer also. 
And you spoke of two in particular, in one particular article, about seeing Judy Garland perform once and also seeing Billy Elliot. Could, could you maybe speak of those experiences? Oh, that, that, was, that was weird. That was, there's a magazine in, in New York called Backstage Magazine, which has got all the casting notices and scrans and scrans. And they were starting a series on the greatest performance you have ever seen. And I was like the second interviewee. And I said to Tony, how do you pick the greatest performance you've ever seen. That's impossible from a lifetime of theatre going uh, and cinema going. And I, I kept reviewing everybody and I kept coming back to the kid that I'd seen play Billy Elliot in London who, it turned out, was an American boy who was the first non-Brit to play the role. He was like the third or fourth replacement in London, a boy called Colin Bates. And I kept sweating about this for about a month and I kept saying to Tony, I can't say the kid from Billy Elliot. I've got to say Judy Dench. Or say. And finally he said, if that's what's in your heart, say it. So I said, all right. So I leavened it with Judy Garland in A Star Is Born, which I think is truly one of the great, you know, unappreciated film performances. And I said, this extraordinary boy who just, I've never seen the like of it. In, in any show in London, this boy Colin Bates. And I said, I have no idea what happened to him after that. He's probably, I heard he started a rock band or something. Um, so I said that. And a few weeks later, there was somebody standing at the stage door. You, when, you, when you leave a Broadway show, there's always a line of people. You've got to do the autographs. And um, there's no running away on Broadway. Um, and there was this gentleman who said, excuse me, do you know what happened to Colin Bates? And I said, no. He said, he's a student at Juilliard. He's a drama student. He's 20. And they said, and somebody found your article and put it up on the board at the school. So he is the talk of the school. And I said, oh, well, that's lovely. And then about two days later, I come out and there's this big, tall, six-foot-three string bean. I'm Colin Bates. <laughs> and we've become friends. And I saw through two of his, three of his grad plays. And his girlfriend is from Orange. <laughs> and so he's been out here. And uh, so it's, it's wonderful. That's it was great. a connection. And I've, I've made a friend. And he's sort of... What you were saying about mentoring, you know, totally. he, he invites me to see all his work and all you that. You said in that article too, and this, this quote, I just love this, I want this in every acting book that's ever, you know, henceforth published. Tony said in that article, there is something about an unforgettable performance that is based on love. There's something that shines through on a stage. I guess it's somebody's soul being bared on a stage. It's like you're seeing the true person. It's something you connect with as an audience member that goes beyond just acting. I think in both cases, that was what moved me, and that's what the greatest acting is, a direct connection between you and the audience. That's gold. <laughs> Speaking of love, here's a quote from your partner of 36 years, Tony Taylor. Living with Mr Sheldon is a constant surprise. It was particularly six degrees of separation time this week. He was reading a Theatre World annual from the 50s for probably the 50th time when he said, when he said Henrietta Jacobson... I wonder if she's Irving Jacobson's sister. I just turned and looked at him as through a very thick scotch mist. <laughs> Irving Jacobson was the first Sancho in Man of La Mancha. 
I get this all the time and he gets lots of scotch mist. <laughs> so where's the six degrees? Sheldon is about to play Don Quixote for Squabble Logic and some years back Mitchell was a little barber in that show and I was a fat sand show. And one day he will probably tell me what else Irving Jacobson was in. Bring it on. <laughs> Now, before, before this uh, interview turns into the Mahabharata of uh, interview, if there's many young performers in the audience tonight, what, what's your, I mean, there's so much advice here already tonight, but what's, what would be your chief advice to a young performer starting out as, who wants to be a theatre performer? Read everything. Um, it's that thing of you don't know what's gone before and you, you, you should. Um, but, but not just about the industry. Read newspapers. Read about what's going on in the world. Uh, you have to be a fully rounded person to be a performer. You have to be interested in everything. You have to be interested in history. You have to be, it doesn't mean... Um, it, just try and get outside of Facebook and looking at your phone and, and what your immediate circle. Um, but I, I really do think it is important. Research, research, research. Um, I, I hit a stumbling block when I was at Whopper and I was... It was the, the opening night party of Jacques Brel and I was with my adored students who were so brilliant in the show and we were discussing plays and movies and I said, have you seen The Miracle Worker, um, the, the William Gibson play that Anne Bancroft and Patty Duke won Academy Awards for as Helen Keller and Annie Sullivan? No, we don't know that. I said, I'll, I'll get it to you. And I sent um, a DVD of it. Never heard another word. And uh, months later, I said to one of the, the, the actors who I was working with, I said, what did you think of The Miracle Worker? And they said, oh, we didn't get past the first couple of minutes. I said, why? And they said, it was in black and white. <laughs> so I, th I would say, please try and get past the black and white <laughs> and just see, just take an interest in the history of the art and the world. Good words, good words. Media Super is the principal sponsor of the Equity Foundation. For more information about the work of the Foundation, visit equityfoundation.org.au or follow Australian Actors' Equity on Facebook and Twitter.